Good morning. Well, it sounds horrible, but I'm always glad when Terry goes on vacation. Because uh, uh, I get to fill in and I uh, get to uh, to bring the word. And I'm also glad that he gets the rest and and uh, enjoys to spend some time with his family. So I pray that uh, he is being uh, well well rested and uh, will able to come back to us uh, ready to uh, to continue to uh, to sacrifice uh, in the ministry. Before I continue, let us uh, please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for another time, another opportunity to be able to come to my brothers and sisters to open up your word, God, to share, to proclaim what it is that you have revealed to me, Lord, what your word has done in my own heart and impacted my life and my thinking, God. And I pray now, Lord, that you will help me to be able to speak clearly, help us to to hear your word, Lord. God, I pray that our minds would flee from the distractions of life, God, the things that are going on, Lord, that tear us in different directions, Lord, and I pray that we would be able to, to consider your word with a clear mind, with an open heart, God, with a sensitive and open uh, and available conscience, God. I pray that your spirit would work in us and complete in us the work that your word has been sent to complete, God. Praise your name. Amen. Well, when uh, Pastor Rag uh, approached me a few months ago and let me know when he was going on vacation, of course, your mind starts going as to where it is that you want to uh, to go. And he gave me the option of doing two weeks in a row. And I said, that's great. I'll do that. A two-parter that does, gives less pressure to finish everything in one week. Uh, so I was uh, I was excited. And my initial inclination is to usually go to something that you've been I've been teaching in Bible study. But unfortunately, in Bible study, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 5. So uh, <laughs> that was off the table. <laughs> we have, uh, I think we have uh, spent quite a bit of time in Romans chapter 5. Um, so uh, my mind started going to my own personal time in the Word. Uh, and as many of you uh, have been doing so far uh, in, in this calendar year, we've been reading through the Bible uh, together. And my wife and I have been reading through uh, every chance that we get, uh, sitting down, and uh, I read it aloud, and we read through uh, the the different passages uh, on the one-year plan. And we've gone through the, the history of Israel, and every time you go through uh, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the Pentateuch, you go through those books, there seems to be new things that are revealed to you. There are new truths, new themes uh, that God opens your eyes to. Uh, and this time, as I was going through, I was, I was able to, to see a constant theme throughout the books of, of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, of, of God preparing the children of Israel for the promised land, for a life of obedience. And... What I wanted to do was, uh, as, especially as we've gone through Romans chapter 5 in our own Bible study, and as we've gone through Romans chapter 5 uh, here on Sundays, I, I wanted to, to actually go back to Romans chapter 5 and use that as a springboard, as a launching point, to get us back uh, to, to where it is that we're going to be spending a bulk of our time. So if you would, please first join me in Romans chapter 5. 
Now, I realize that the events and the truths of Exodus and, and the Pentateuch are, are great illustrations of what God is doing in our own lives, that we can learn and draw a lot from them. And we all find ourselves going on lo- one level or another through our own wilderness, right? We, we are all find ourselves in times of various trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, very familiar uh, verses with many of us. Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet various trials, not if, but when, right? We all face these trials, but we know that the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness. And that's a, a theme that is, is echoed here in Romans chapter 5. We all have these things. Many of them, they're things that we share personally, maybe as a family. Many of these things we share corporately as a body where we suffer together. And that's the way that God designed the church to operate and to function. But what we need to know is that these trials are not an end to themselves, but they're a means to an end. And we've seen that truth in Romans chapter 5. So what I want to do is just read real briefly, real quickly here, a couple verses in Romans chapter 5, starting at the beginning. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justification by faith being the theme of chapter 4, he's transitioning now into chapter 5. Since we have this justification Through faith, by faith, we have, we now have peace with God through the conduit, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So because of this faith that we have now through Jesus Christ, we are now experiencing a peace with God that we never had before. And this peace with God provides the opportunity for an access with God that we never had before. And an access that if you were reading this with Jewish eyes would be a completely foreign thought, a foreign concept. It's an amazing thing. And this, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so these are some amazing truths, foundational, life-forming truths that we see here. But the next verse Paul says something very similar, very, very interesting, excuse me. More than that, we rejoice in sufferings. We see that phrase more than that. And we think that's an interesting phrase to use more than that. Yet it's more, it's, it's, if you remember Billy Mays, the infomercial king, right? But wait, there's more, right? The, but wait, there's more. If you call now, we'll double your order and we'll throw in the sham wows, right? We will, I will give you a free squeegee. But wait, there's more. There's more to add to this. And you think, what, what more can you add to now having peace with God, access to God, and hoping in glory? What more could you add? And Paul says, we rejoice in sufferings. And you're like, but that doesn't really seem like a more than that. That doesn't seem like an occasion to say, but wait, there's more. We re- but wait, there's more. We rejoice in sufferings. The reality is, is that when you become saved, when you rejoice in your salvation, it doesn't make it that your life is now easy. It doesn't remove all of the bumps, the potholes of life. You still have to navigate those. But we know that they're doing something, right? And that's the point here. We rejoice in our suffering because we know that this suffering is producing something. It's doing something. It's producing an endurance. And that endurance produces a character, 
And that character then produces hope. And it becomes this nonstop cycle that we, we go through in our lives where we meet sufferings and that suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character. That character produces hope and we glory in that hope and then we find ourselves in another occasion to sorrow and we find our, uh, another occasion to suffer. And so we know that that suffering produces endurance and character and hope and it's a nonstop cycle from now until the Lord calls us home. But we know and we approach it with confidence because we know that God is doing something through it. God is trying to produce something. Now, as I had uh, Elder Elder Russ read through 1 Corinthians 10, we know that those things were written for our example. The Old Testament, the accounts of Israel were written for our example. And I think they're a great illustration for the truths that we've been learning in Romans chapter 5. So what I want to do now is I want everyone to turn in your Bibles back to Exodus. Now, as you may see, as we turn to the books of, book of Exodus, we're going to start in Exodus uh, chapter 14. As you may see, uh, feel free to not feel pressured. Uh, the, the, it, the, uh, the bulletin, I think, that says Exodus through Deuteronomy. Uh, <laughs> and, and we're starting to smell the, the, the sense of good food come up from the, from the basement, right? We're not going to be covering the entirety of the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. So don't worry. The food will still be warm when we get downstairs. Uh, Just if you had any concerns about that. So as we find ourselves in the book of Exodus, let's just give me let me just give you a little bit of a historical background, a little historical recap of what what's been going on. So. As the nation of Israel, uh, God in his sovereignty, in his plan, his sovereign plan, sends Joseph down uh, to Israel, or to Egypt, excuse me. He sends Joseph down to Egypt, and he finds himself in Egypt under unfortunate circumstances. He goes through these circumstances. He eventually finds himself, after an extended stay uh, in prison, he finds himself the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And at that point, there's a famine in the land of Israel. And Jacob sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, down to Egypt, right? And uh, one thing leads to another. And God uses this uh, very unfortunate circumstance. Another example, frankly, of of what it is that we're going to be talking about this morning. But God uses this circumstance to do something, to teach them something, to preserve them. And the nation of Israel eventually comes down to Egypt is welcomed in because of the good standing that Joseph has with Pharaoh and the rest of the uh, people of Egypt. And uh, Israel now finds a new home during this time of famine in the land and is able to uh, preserve themselves. They are given the choicest of the land to dwell in, the land of Goshen. And the book of Exodus ends with the nation of Israel growing. They're growing They're growing roots, and they're growing in population. They're growing in wealth as they find uh, the choicest land in Egypt. Then we have a significant gap of about 400 years between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And you open up the books of Exodus, and if you've been reading through uh, the Bible, and you see a stark contrast between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? It goes from all is rosy, peachy, and nice with Israel to now they're in a bad situation again and they're being put into forced labor, into servitude. Now, to give you a little bit of historical background with the the land of Egypt, 
what had happened and transgressed during these 400 plus years between the two, uh, the, the two books, uh, a, a nation of people called the Hyksos had come in and they were non-Egyptians, okay? And they were from, from the Asiatics. They come down and they end up taking over part of Egypt. And they become populous, they rise up, and they are able to kick out one of the dynasties of Egypt. Then some time goes by, and then another dynasty of Egyptians rises up and able to kick out the Hyksos. All right? So a lot of time has gone by, and completely different people have come in and ruled Egypt, and then have exited, and now a completely different dynasty of rulers have, have come up, and that's why when you read that there arose a pharaoh that did not know Joseph, it's not just that like a, a grand, it didn't get passed down from grandfather to grandson and, and passed down through the lineage. It's that it was a completely different regime, completely different dynasty. And they looked at the nation of Israel and they see this foreign people growing in a great population, great number. And what we see in Exodus chapter 12, that it, they were numbered at about 600,000 men. Now, that doesn't include women and children. So 600,000 men, you do the math, that's about 2 million people when you consider women and children. So now you have this massive group of people. Now, you think of 2 million people, that is more than the populations of Maine and New Hampshire combined today. All right? So consider the populations of New Hampshire and Maine combined together. That's the nation of Israel right now a huge amount of people a lot more than they were 400 years ago when jacob and his sons came down into egypt so the egyptians look around and they say hey i think we have the hyksos part two on our hands here we could have a problem so let's let's deal with this problem and let's force them into servitude so they they force them into servitude they're enslaved they're uh they're we're familiar with the making of bricks and then they remove the straw that they have to do more work, but uh, create the same output. And, uh, and God is making their life miserable through Egypt. Okay. And God sends his deliverer Moses down. God sends his deliverer Moses down. We see that the 10 plagues, the Passover, we see amazing things happen and Israel all the way through these events is spared from these plagues. God is, uh, God is not having it affect them. And th- so they see God on the attack through these plagues. And each plague is strategically focused on a God of the Egyptians to show them how God, Yahweh God, Israel's God, was greater than anything that they had. So we have all of these things going, okay? And now they are leaving, they're exiting. Pharaoh finally relents. And they're exiting the land. They're allowed to go off into the wilderness to worship the Lord. So some things that we need to remember now. As as they're leaving Egypt and they're heading off back to the promised land. So we we covered that there's about 2 million people, roughly, of, of, of the Jews. There's also what is known as a mixed multitude hanging out with these Jews. So you have people from Egypt that have kind of hung on and said, well, I think I'd rather go with them. Okay, so you have these people with them. Now, as, as time has gone by, they have not had a singular leader in Egypt. 
And there has been some form of syncretism, which is a combining of worship, when they were in Egypt. I'm sure they adopted Egyptian customs, Egyptian ways of life. And now God was bringing them out of that life and bringing them up to the promised land to give them the land that he had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he needs to make them into a nation. If he just walked them straight from Egypt up to Israel, they would have failed miserably. They didn't know how to worship God. They didn't know how to function as a nation. They didn't have a king to lead them. So God uses this time in the wilderness to form and to shape Israel into a nation that is prepared and qualified to, one, conquer the land, and two, live in it in a way that is glorifying to God, in a way that, that is, is a presentation of, of what God wants to communicate through his people. So God proclaimed them in Exodus chapter 19 to be a kingdom of priests. But they were going, they were, they were nowhere near where they needed to be in order to fill out that role. Now, if you were to walk directly from Egypt to Israel, um, and, and I, I went on Google Maps and, and, and saw what it would take if you walked and they have you kind of going like straight across and then up because I'm sure that's a road. You don't want to go straight through the wilderness. So you walk straight through and you take a little detour and you go up. It would take about six days of straight walking. Okay, so consider, you know, spending some nights not walking all day. You know, you could you could walk there in a couple weeks, right? No problem. Now you add on a couple million people and that's going to take a little bit longer, but it doesn't take 40 years. It doesn't take 40 plus years, right? And so we know from various circumstances that that's how long it took Israel to travel from Egypt to Israel. And it's not because they were slow. It's because God was using the circumstances to prepare them as a nation for a successful obedience in the land. So there are two things, two major things that God wanted to teach Israel, I believe. Two major things that God was, was wanting to accomplish during the time in which they were in the wilderness. The first thing is God wanted to teach Israel about himself. He wanted to teach Israel about himself. He purposely puts them into situations to show where their power should come from and how faithful he was. So what I first want to do is take a look at Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. So we know uh, God had hardened Pharaoh's heart and uh, they had experienced the 10 plagues. God had shown his superiority and he is, lets them go. But chapter 14, read along with me, verse 2. God says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp from in front of Pihaharathoth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So very specific instructions as to where Moses is to take, right? The people of Israel. Go to the sea so that the sea is at your back. All right? Very specific that he wants them in this exact location. And then he says, For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, 
They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So Moses says, I want you to go and put the nation of Israel in a trap. Okay? Move these two million people into a situation where there is no way of escape. And Moses, to his credit, doesn't say, I see a flaw in this plan, God. Right? He obediently takes them out into the wilderness and brings them to this very spot. Now, Pharaoh sees what's going on, and he instinctively reacts and says, I can get them. They're like fish in a barrel right now. Easy pickings. I Sure, I let them go. I didn't say I wouldn't bring them back. I can go and get them, and I can bring them back into, back into Egypt. So he, Pharaoh goes in verse 5 uh, through 9 and goes and, and brings out 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers, a massive army. This is the, the most uh, aggressive, the most powerful army on the history of, on, in, on the planet at this time. Okay. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after him, after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Right? Pretty dramatic stuff. Bunch of teenagers. Right? So they look at it and like, you have brought us out here to die. Like the only reason you brought us out here must be because there wasn't enough room to bury us all in Egypt. We needed open real estate to have enough graves to die very dramatic but god is putting them in a specific situation to show them his power we know what happens right we're familiar with what happens they witness the power of god they see firsthand god's providential faithfulness in ways that they could not even imagine or predict now if I were to put you all at the the edge of a large mass of water, okay, and I said there's an army bearing down, you can see them approaching you from a distance, and I said I'm here's a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to come up with all of the plausible ways in which you could escape this impending doom, okay? they would be thinking more along the lines of how can I create a boat to get across this boat? This How can I invent flight, right? Is there anyone that's thought of teleporting yet? Right, you're, you're thinking of all these, these, these options. At no point would anyone ever suggest the possibility of why don't we split the water and walk across and then have the water collapse back on top of the Egyptian army and kill them all? Anyone think of that? Any? Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, right? You can't predict that kind of stuff. That's why God put them there. To show them that you can't see how I'm going to provide for you. 
I'm going to do it in a way that you, you, you can't comprehend. And that's exactly what God does. God delivers them in a way that is unpredictable. A.W. Pink says this, Israel had been brought into their present predicament by God himself. It was the pillar of the cloud which had led them to where they were now encamped. Important truth for us to lay hold of. We must not expect the path of faith to be an easy and smooth one. Faith must be tested and tested severely. But why? That we may learn the sufficiency of our God. That we may prove from experience that he is able to supply our every need. Make a way of escape from every temptation and do for us exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. That's exactly what God is doing with Israel. God is training them saying, I will do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever imagine. Now watch this. And they turn around and the waters separate and they walk through. And they're like looking at fish on either side of them, right? Probably some like sunken ships and stuff, boats on, on, the, on the floor of the, the sea. And they walk through and it's not just on dry land. God even made the, the land dry. It wasn't even muddy. Like it was hard to walk through. They go through and then they turn around and boom, Egyptian army gone. So God says, so who's your faith in now? God said, your faith should be in me. Don't look straight. Don't look at the Egyptian army. Look at me. When Israel looked up, they didn't look up far enough. They looked up and they saw their circumstances. They didn't see their God. So that is what God is going to do. Now, quickly, as we go through what I'm going to do, we don't have time to turn, unfortunately, to every single uh, circumstance. But we see God training them again and again. We see a couple chapters later, right, that they grumble. The people grumble and they said, oh, verse 3, chapter 16, would that we have died in the hand of the Lord in the, uh, at, in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out in the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. They have this thought of like, we just sat by pots and the meat crawled out of the pots and into our mouth. Like, oh, we, we had everything we needed in Egypt and you brought us out here to starve. Doesn't take long, right? For our, our flesh to go back to looking at the Egyptian army and not at the Lord. Looking at the circumstances, looking at the hunger and not the Lord. So what does God do? Again, brainstorm session. No one's going to come up with dropping food from the sky, right? No one's going to come up with creating food. And they call it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? Right? It, it, what is it? It is what is, hey, we have some more what is it today. God provided for us some more what is it. You wouldn't think that God would provide that way, but God's showing them, I'm going to provide for you how I want on my terms when I, I'm, I'm going to give you everything you need. Just trust me. And then he tells them on the sixth day, I'm going to give you twice as much. Okay. I'm going to give you twice as much because on, on, on the Sabbath, I want you to rest. I want you to rest once a day and I'm going to force you to do that. 
And he says, each day I'm going to give you enough for one day. I'm going to give you enough bread for one day, enough manna. And of course, the people of Israel, right, they didn't necessarily, not all of them trusted. And so they hoard. They would have made good Americans. They hoarded, right? They hoarded everything, and then it was all spoiled the next day. All full of worms, it was disgusting. God was training them, saying, you need to trust me every single day. You don't need a reserve of food because I will provide it for you. That's why when Jesus tells the disciples how to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is what it's hearkening back to. Give us this day our daily need. Don't give me tomorrow's needs today. Give me what I need today. And that, that, that's the attitude that God is trying to raise within Israel. Well, we continue another chapter, another chapter, another complaint, chapter 17. Now you brought us out of Egypt to kill us of thirst, right? So how does God provide? He said, okay, all right, well, grab a shovel and dig, and there'll be a big aquifer of water under the ground. Is that what he says? No, that, that would make sense. That would be logical, right? Dig a well. No, what he says is, hit that rock. <laughs> Sorry, what? You want what? Hit, hit the rock. Hit the rock. I'm going to make water come out of a rock. Because I'm going to show you that I can make bread fall from the sky. I can make water divide in half and consume an army. And I can make water come out of a rock. Again, God provides. Now, we fast forward to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And we see the people complain yet again. Now they're sick of the manna, which you can't really blame them, right? If you had to eat the same thing over and over and over again, you'd, you'd get kind of sick of it. Now, I, I spent, after my, uh, I graduated from college, I went to Uganda for five weeks. And uh, it was an eye-opening experience for me. And you don't realize how much you idolize food than when you are given something that you pour into water and it boils up. And it has no flavor and no taste. And it, they eat it because it fills their stomach. And you realize, so what I did is I brought a box of granola bars with me. <laughs> and once a week, I would go inside my tent and I would peel open my chewy granola peanut butter granola bar. And I would eat it in delight. I'm like, oh, this is so good. But I can sympathize with Israel. I can, I, I can honestly sympathize with them. That you can only cook manna so many different ways, right? And, but they complain They're like, oh, you know, we in Egypt, we had all this glorious food and it just jumped in our mouth and it made itself. And it was, it was fantastic. And God is, his patience is being tested. So he says, you want food? You want meat? All right, I'll give you meat. Boom. Out of the sky, two feet. Sorry, three feet deep of bird fall from the sky, a day's journey in every direction. And <laughs> let, let me let me let me go here because this is this is rich rich stuff. He says in verse eighteen, therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days but a whole month 
until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Saying, this is what you want. Fine, I'll give it to you. And I'm going to give it to you and you're going to loathe it. But again, God shows them, I can do whatever it is that I need to do to provide for you, including dropping three feet of quail from the sky. Now, time does not allow us to recount all the ways that God provided for Israel. He led them by a cloud and fire. Their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out in the wilderness. I think that's often overlooked. They didn't have to shop at Payless as they went through the wilderness. They, they, they didn't have to get new clothes. God preserved their clothes and their shoes. God delivered them from the Amalekites. They saw military victory in the wilderness. God enveloped Mount Sinai with his glory. He purified waters at Meribah. Time and time again, God showed them, them his power. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 30 says this, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way until you came to this place. So he says in Deuteronomy that look back at what God has done. He has carried you through the wilderness as a father holds his child, his son. He preserved you. He protected you. Continue to trust him. Now Israel had routinely failed to look above the difficulties to see the sovereignty of God. It's easy for us to look at them critically and judgmentally. But for us to move on and not see the same tendencies and inclinations of our own hearts would be foolish. It would be folly. We're quick to languish the hard times in our life, the trials, right? We idolize the good times. We think, oh, well, life will just, when this gets better, when this is over, then everything will be great. When I, once I get past this trial, then everything will be easy. How many times has that happened in your life? When one thing ends, another starts, right? That's the cycle that we see in Romans chapter 5. Don't idolize the good times, but learn from the difficult ones. Learn. The reality is that when we learn more about God's sovereignty and the circumstances, when our strengths are mitigated or completely eliminated altogether... That, that God's sovereignty shows through. It's at those points that we see his faithfulness. It's at those points where we see God dividing water. God making food fall from the sky, water pop out of a rock. We start seeing those things in our own life. Now there's a difference between knowing the textbook theology of God and seeing that take action in your own life. Like you can read the word of God and you can understand and you can answer the, 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 the theological questions and queries about God. But when you see it on display, it gives new definition to it. 
Now, the second thing that God wanted to teach them, God wanted to use, uh, teach them while he was in the wilderness, is that he wanted to teach them to be able to worship the, him spiritually. He wanted to shape them spiritually in the wilderness. Now, there's a saying that theology without doxology is idolatry. Theology without doxology. So understanding who God is without actually forming some type of worship is creating an, uh, an idol in your life. God was not just about making sure that they knew who he was, but that they, he made sure they knew how to worship him. Now, the first thing they do when they get out of Egypt is they go to Sinai and they camp there for a year and God gives them the law. And they spend that year learning how to follow the law. And this law is a good thing. It is a great thing. Because they're going to get into the land of Israel and the people are going to look at them and they're going to say, wait, you have a God who talks to you? Like, it doesn't rain for a week and we have to wonder, what did we do? How did we make God upset? How do we make our gods upset? And so we have to start doing things. And and then when it starts raining, we all have to stop and we have to think, what did we do to make our God happy? Do it again. Keep doing it. And that that is the life that they were enslaved to. And now the people of Israel come into the promised land and they say, oh yeah, yeah, our, our God talks to us and he provides for us and he told us what makes him happy. So that's what we do. And that's what God wanted to happen. That was what God's plan was. His intention. So the first thing they do is they are presented the law. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, before they're about to enter in the land to conquest, God reiterates the law to them once again. Deuteronomy literally means second law. He presents the law to them again. In Exodus, you don't have to turn there. Let me just turn there real quickly. Exodus chapter 19, right, is... The law is being presented. Moses is on Mount Sinai. Verse 4, chapter 19 says, For you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And he goes on and he gives them the law. This is it. Obey this. Heed these words. If you do this, it will go well with you. So God wanted to form them spiritually. So he gave them the law. But he also showed them in drastic ways what it meant to worship the Lord in purity. As you go through the book of Leviticus, if you read through, some of it can seem kind of dry. But it is all God showing purposely and specifically how God wanted them to worship him. So we get through some of those sacrifices and the feasts. And then we see in Leviticus chapter 10, the high priest, Aaron's own sons, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire to God. And they're killed just like that. God says, No, you must worship me how I demand to be worshipped. Don't worship me on your own terms. That's not what I want. And God illustrates it in a powerful way in killing Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu. 
He says in Leviticus chapter 19, he declares to the nation of Israel, you shall be holy for I am holy. You will be a holy people set apart for my glory. If you read through the book of Leviticus, it is very clear that there is no room for a casual approach to God, that he must be worshipped purposely and specifically. He's specific to the clothes that the priests have to wear, to the way that they make a sacrifice, to the way that they sprinkle blood, to the construction of the tabernacle. Very, very detailed instructions. Now please turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. I want to focus on one thing here that I found really interesting as I was reading through these passages. And this is law on the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And you may think, well, what in the world can you learn about God's sovereignty and faithfulness from the year of Sabbath and the year of Jubilee? Well, we're going to see. So the Sabbath year, that every se- every, after every sixth year, every seventh year, they were to give the land rest. The idea was that they would not work the land. They would give the land a year rest. Now, interesting side note, it is never seen or observed that Israel actually ever did this. And when you look at the length of their stay in captivity, it corresponds directly with the numbers of years that they missed of observing the the Sabbath year. You think God meant it when he told them this? So he he, he tells them, for six years, verse three, you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year, There shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field and you shall not prune your vineyard. Now, if we skip forward to verse 20. A natural objection that Israel might have. If you say, well, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? If we can't sow, what are we going to eat? I will, verse 21, command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. So he says, I'm going to give you in that sixth year, you are going to get the bumper crops of all bumper crops. And you're going to get enough food for that year. And then you're going to get enough food for the Sabbath year. But wait, there's more. I'm going to give you enough food for the year after the Sabbath year. Because as you plant, it takes time for the the, the plants to continue to yield good fruit. Now, put yourself in their sandals. It's year number six. Your faith in God may be struggling a little bit. And you're you're taking account and stock of of the, the yield that your crops had that year. And you're like, we did pretty good this year. Now, man, last six years, I got this, I got this, I got this, and then I got this much food. If I plant again next year, I could get even more food. That's probably what they did because they never observed the year of Sabbath. But God was trying to show them that I will bless you for obedience. I'm going to provide the means for you to obey me. I'm going to give you and tell you, don't plant the sixth, the seventh year. 
but I'm going to provide for you in the sixth year all the food that you're going to need. So I, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you face a way of temptation, I'm going to provide a way out. God says, I'm going to give you enough food before the temptation arises to, to carry you through. We also see, interestingly enough, the year of Jubilee in the same chapter. Now, every, the 50th year, so seven sevens, so seven times seven is 49. They had seven sets of seven, 49 years. On the 50th year, they were to experience a year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, everything would reset in the land of Israel and go back to its normal owners, its original owners, the original clans. And now the American capitalist reads this and thinks, that's not fair, right? What this is doing, God is purposely creating an atmosphere in which monopolies could not exist. He is leveling the field every 50 years. Why do you think that is? Because he didn't want the wealthy to rely upon their own resources. He wanted them to rely on him. So you could have gained for yourself all this land in those 49 years, but now in the 50th year, you need to sell it back to the people that you bought it from. It doesn't sit well necessarily with our our capitalist free market minds. (laughs) But they were a theocracy, and we are very clearly not. They were a theocracy, and God was trying to tell them that the land is mine. Verse 23 of chapter 25, the land is mine. That you're going, I'm going to use it to provide for you in ways that you need to rely upon me, not upon the empire that you have built for yourself. It's clear that God was using these times to mold and to shape his people into a nation for his glory. He was was training them time and time again to to understand his faithfulness. And he was training them to to worship him and, and, and to follow the law, to be formed into a nation of priests so they'd be ready once they got into the... Because once they get in, they're going to get into the nation of Israel. They're going to have a conquest they're going to conquer the land and then they're going to spread and they have no king they have no ruler over them god was their ruler so god is forming the people all the way through the wilderness to be able to succeed and to worship him once they got into the promised land now the same is true in our own lives that God doesn't waste difficult circumstances that he brings into our lives. But he sovereignly uses these to teach us to rely on him and not on our own strength. I'm sure we've all experienced the times where it's like, really? Like, you feel like Job sometimes. And not as necessary, hopefully, Lord willing, not to the, the drastic, where like some one person's coming in and said, yeah, the tent fell and killed all your kids. Yeah, another tornado came and like took away everything and then your, your crops are gone and your livestock are dead. But we feel like, man, like, really? You just, you're, you're getting a blow from every side. God is trying to increase our dependence upon him. He's building that Romans 5 endurance. 
And that's exactly what he's doing with the nation of Israel here. As we've seen in Romans chapter 5, trials and circumstances are doing something. It's not just a grin and bear it. But they're doing something. The sovereign God of the universe is working a specific trial, a specific situation in your life right now. To build that endurance and that trust in him. So my question for you is, are you learning? Are you learning or are you fighting? Are you fighting against it? Now, as we read through Romans chapter 5, we see that it it produces endurance within us. And we talked about this at our Bible study on Tuesday night uh, and, and the last one too. That we hopefully, the Lord willing, the plan is that you look at your life and you see, wow, I endure things a lot better than I did five years ago, one year ago, ten years ago, whatever it may be. Hopefully, Lord willing, when you're not the toddler, when your no- cup knocks over, you start screaming, right? Hopefully, you don't respond in the same way to, to trials, that you're growing, right? So, Embrace the trial. Learn from the trial because there is a sovereign hand of God who is using this situation. And you have no idea what God's going to do. God could open up the sea so that you could walk through on dry land. God can make water come out of a rock. If he can do that, he can take a tumor out of a brain, people. Don't lose faith in God. God is doing something in your life. And whatever the result is, whatever whatever happens in your life, it is God using and pushing and, and that flipsis, that tribulation squeezing down like an oil press to make us more dependent upon him and to not stare at the circumstance, but to lift our eyes up and to look at our deliverer. The same God of Egypt, people who made food fall from the sky, is the same one who loves you and cares for you and is bringing you through these circumstances to teach you something. Now, as a final word of encouragement, let this also educate the way that we encourage each other. When we're going through circumstances, now we all build up endurance at different rates, at different times. Now, this is something that God taught me uh, a lot when I was a youth pastor and I was dealing with junior hires and counseling them and listening. And, and you hear the, the pleas and the concerns of a junior hire and you're like, oh, that's cute. Like, oh, that sounds, that sounds hard. She said that, yeah. Oh, wow, that sounds difficult. But put yourself in the shoes, not to belittle any junior hire. Your trials are real. Because God is teaching you endurance at that age. So when someone comes and is experiencing something, (laughs) the reaction isn't, you think that's difficult? Let me tell you about my trial. You think that hurts? It's like that that party, that circle at a party where everyone's sharing the injury stories and they're like, yeah, well, I had a a fracture. And like, well, my bone stuck through my leg. Like, okay, you win. Right? And then someone walks up and like, well, I had natural childbirth. Like, she wins. Right? It's not a competition. It's not a competition. 
that God is building up endurance with each of us. So that, yes, it seems difficult. And you can look at someone who may not have the experience and the life experience that you have, and they're experiencing and going through something, but it's big for them. It's hard for them because God hasn't built up that muscle of endurance within them. So pray for them. Help them through that. In the same respect, when you're going through it, see, God, how are you going to build my endurance? How are you training me right now? How am I being weaned from this world? What weaknesses are are being made known in my heart? Now, next week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look about how these two points were integrated into a specific situation, and namely, the home how, how these things were to be carried on within the home. And we're going we're gonna to look at, at God's intention for how this was to be carried out uh, within, within a family context. And then we're going to see how they failed in that respect and it, it ultimately led uh, to, uh, to further suffering on their account. And Lord willing, hopefully we can learn from that, right? And and we can grow and not make the same mistakes because that's that's why it's here. First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 1 to 13, that these things are here for our example. They're here for us to learn from. So let me let me pray for us as as we uh, we as we end. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I I thank you, God, for these words, these truths that you have laid out for us, Lord, and that we get to see your provision for for other other people before us. Uh, in amazing ways, God, ways that we cannot predict. God, no, we, we would not be able, if our backs were to a body of water, God, we would not be able to foresee a circumstance in which you would divide the water. God, this is the, the earth is yours and all that is in it. Lord, it is all here for your purpose and for your glory, God, and you use these circumstances. You sovereignly put us in difficulties to teach us to depend upon you to wean us, God, to burn that dross away, God, so that we may be proven in our character, God, and that character produces a hope, God, that does not put us to shame. I pray that our hope would be in you, that you would lift our eyes off of the circumstances of life, off the Egyptian army, off the hunger, off the thirst, that our, our eyes would be lifted to the sovereign God who is in control of it all. Praise things your name. Amen.